Guys, 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 cross is coming. Cyclocross, cycling's dirty, filthy, muddy sport is just around the corner. And we here at Velo News have you covered with our annual cyclocross print issue preview. Kaylee, what, what's going on in this issue, this cyclocross preview? All sorts of awesome stuff. Uh, we talk about the upcoming U.S. Cup, which is Ryan Trebone and Scott Tedrow's little project trying to revamp something kind of similar in the same vein as the old USGP for, mm-hmm. for cross fans. I'm sure you remember the USGP. Uh, we also have a great story from Chris Case in there about the rivalry between Wout Van Aert and Matthew Vanderpool. Cross nuts, you're going to want to pick this one up. Uh, I believe it's called The Beautiful Duel. These guys are so evenly matched on these courses, and it really is the big story to follow through the end of this year's cross season. So yeah, the 2017-18 VeloNews Cyclocross Preview coming to newsstands soon. We are back. We are back. We are back. With the Vel News Podcast, I'm Fred Dreyer, and I am joined today by Spencer Paulison, News Director of Vel News. Hello, Spencer. Hey, Fred. Welcome back. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming to the podcast today. <laughs> you look different. For uh, some reason. I am. He looks heavier. Something different. Yeah. We can't tell him weighing him down. Right. Oh, it's this wedding ring. Oh my oh, gosh. Congratulations, Fred Dreyer. Fred has finally reached the same heightened level of uh, success as Kaylee and I. It's true. He's it's married. True. We're already yeah. highly married. So, but you're, but you're third place in the quickest to get married category. <laughs> I'm first. Kaylee second. You're third. Sorry, ladies. We're all taken now. Um, <laughs> Still uh, a podium, though. Also nice work. joining me today is Kaylee Fretz. Senior hey, Fred. How are you? I'm doing well. Kaylee, we were in the same part of the world this weekend. Yeah, you saw my truck from afar. I did. You did not see me uh, hanging out in a hot tub. Nope. Not riding nope. a bike. <laughs> and uh, joining us today from Spain, again, he's our European correspondent, Andrew Hood. Uh, Hoodie, it sounds like you are like Spain's least favorite nanny these days. You're, you're a childcare specialist. What was going on last week? Tell the good people what the heck was going on. <laughs> yeah, well, I was hanging out in this lovely little uh, town. Let's see if I remember where I was up um, around Murcia. And it's, it's Spain. I was having a late night dinner during the podcast. And of course, there are just dozens of kids running around. And I think uh, our pad- podcast followers got a taste of what a late night uh, weeknight is like in Spain. Still, you have to say, it still was kind of back white school season yet, so the kiddies were still out late at night. And tonight, I swapped it out for a Spanish truck stop. So, <laughs> if you hear, if you hear, if you hear, if you hear screaming tonight, it's because someone just scored a goal. <laughs> they got the, they have the football match on over there. I tried to squeeze off into this corner. A bit of footy, eh? Loud people. Spain's a loud place. It is. I mean, to me, when I listened to that episode, I thought maybe you were like recording from a ball pit at a McDonald's play place, <laughs> or that you were like moonlighting as some sort of nanny or childcare specialist. I was like, what, what's going on with Andy Hood? I sent him to cover the Vuelta. Is he actually like uh, working at a nursery? <laughs> It's a loud country. That's all I got to say. Uh, well, let's get into it, guys. We have a few topics to talk about today. The Vuelta España has entered its third and final week, barring any type of, I don't know, like a meteor striking the earth or um, some terrible, like, gut-busting sickness afflicting him. Chris Froome is going to walk away with this year's uh, Vuelta España. But what if Alberto Contador just keeps attacking? Surely one of them will work, right? Oh, man. One of these times, it's got to work. Alberto Contador has made it very interesting, but each of these attacks seem to cause him to lose upwards of what, like 40 seconds, a minute? Here's, a, here's an idea. It seems like it's always, he like trades off days with Nibali, mm-hmm. and maybe they should just coordinate and both attack on the same day Ooh, for once. I like it. Because then they could work together. So with Chris Froome all but assured to win this year's race, I mean, never say never, well, we want to talk about some of the other gentlemen fighting for the podium positions. Uh, we want to talk about the rise of Miguel Angel Lopez, who won his second stage of this year's Welta just the other day. Superman. Superman, really explosive, exciting racer with a huge future ahead of him. And then, last but not least, we have the big mountain coming up, the col- the Alto Del Angry Lou, steepest, hardest climb in all of Europe, coming up at the end of the week. Angry Lou. Angry Lou. And if we can't get excited about who's going to win the overall at this year's Vuelta, we can definitely get excited about the chaos that's going to happen on that mountain. Um, And then we're going to listen to an interview 
that uh, what Kaylee you caught up with? Nope, no hoodie did. <laughs> hoodie, <laughs> I am not at the Vuelta. Uh, no hoodie sent over a couple audio grabs, and I was listening through before the episode. And I think that uh, well, let's listen to let's, later on. We'll catch up with Tom Squinch. Mm. Uh, he talks a little bit about Cannondale's predicament, which is also going to be. Uh, part of the podcast a little later on. Yeah, you did a great job on that interview, by the way, Kaylee. Thank you I very much. I appreciate really, that. Really good interviewing by you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we have the Cannondale Dreadpack Saga entering its second week, and we're going to be having some thoughts on that. So let's get into it. Guys, we watched the t- individual time trial today. Chris Froome took another 30 seconds to a minute out of his closest rivals. He is all but assured to win this year's race. And Hoodie, you have written about this a few times. It really does appear that uh, resistance is futile at this point <laughs> in the Welta. What, what are people talking about, about chances to snatch the red leader's jersey from Chris Froome? Yeah, I think, I think you're right. It's either a, uh, an, an attack of uh, some killer ants or, or you know, uh, a nuclear attack from South Korea or something like that to stop Froome from winning this Welta. But they, they brought their true to France game to the world today. They planned it out all season long. They saw how the tour course was stacked up. Not a lot of time trialing, a very tight profile. So they thought that they could just kind of bring in Froome a little bit cold into this year's tour and let him go into this welter with fresher legs. It's really paying it off. He was describing his tactics. Their, their kind of blueprint for this race was get an early lead and then count on his Team Sky teammates to hold it and then knock it out of the park with a time trial. So he's got two minutes. I mean, that's a lot of time. And with the climbs coming up, we have uh, Los Machucos tomorrow and then Anguru on, on Saturday. Both those climbs are so steep that unless you just completely crack, you just really will not lose that much time. I mean, the climbing speeds, when it's that steep, it's more like just a race of attrition. So if you lose the wheel, you're not going to lose that much time. You might lose 20 seconds if you're on kind of an average day. You have to really have a big, big fold of crash or an illness for Froome to lose this thing. Is it just me or is this the craziest gamble ever to go into the tour a little underdone and just hope it works out because you want to try and win the Vuelta afterward? Like, how did that decision get made? Because as far as I'm concerned, the tours should always be a higher priority for a top GC rider. Well, I think that the tour was the priority. I think they made a decision to not have Froome race as much in the spring. You didn't really see him uh, really perform at a high level really until right into the Dauphiné coming into the Tour. And that's a little bit different than the past where he's always performed well at races like uh, Catalonia, Roman D, which he's won a few times. So, yeah, I mean, the idea was to win the Tour. They also wanted him to be strong in that third week, which has been kind of a weak point. So they kind of saw a few things stacked up in the idea that, okay, he's raced early before and he's kind of tapered off in that third week of the Tour. So let's just kind of push that back a few weeks going out of the tour and see if he can work it out. And to be honest, you have to look at the at the, at the riders coming into this into this uh, Tour de France, or into this Welta Spanish, excuse me. You know, really, probably the best GC field ever. But Froome is just proving that he's got everybody's number. I think it goes down to the fact that he's got a better team. Yeah. And that goes back to the question, it goes back to the question of, you know, that whole question that came up during this Welta was, is there an unfair advantage with Team Sky having just so much money they can buy top riders they can buy the best coaching they can buy the best of everything i checked out the race hub you know the new uh fancy uh formula one style band they have at the at the uh at the welds and team sky man they just got everything that's better on that team yeah, yeah. They had like a buffet there like what was that race <laughs> hub like let's do mm. let's let's take a little sidebar give us uh 45 seconds on the right race hub like did you get your like feet rubbed in there i mean did they have uh, like deviled eggs <laughs> and a little uh you know like a little uh, press buffet Rider buffet there. What was it like? Well, they have this. It's a it's a it's a pretty swanky setup. I think it's think costs more than a million bucks. They're using it as a trial right now during this well to see how it works. And if it comes out, if it works out okay, and so far everyone seems to like it a lot, they will bring it to next year's tour events. It's this big tractor. It's like a Formula One kind of paddock style vehicle. It's a tractor trailer. It unfolds horizontally and vertically. And you walk in there, it's like a really nice setup. They've got a full service kitchen on one half. They have the riders' dining room on the other half of the lower down, downstairs area. And that's where they eat every night. They don't eat in the team hotels anymore. It's part of this idea of keeping everybody clean, keeping out the germs, making sure no one's getting sick, and keeping that hermetically sealed. Wait. We went in there last week. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What? Wait a minute, wait a minute. This sounds familiar. This sounds like the time they tried to do the whole camper van thing 
for Richie Port, and the UCI shot him down. Are they going to do that again? Are they going to get shut down again? Evidently, uh, they were not getting shut down because other teams are using kitchen vans and are oh. actually eating outside of uh, hotels. The old well. kitchen oh. van loophole. <laughs> Yeah, the old kitchen van loophole, you know, rule 12-107.3. <laughs> I mean, uh, the, the idea is just to get rid of, like, any and all hotel time with the exception of where they're actually sleeping, right? Because they have to sleep in the hotel bed. That That is actually a rule. Am I correct in that? That is correct. Yeah. That is correct. They do sleep in the hotel. Now they're bringing their own beds into the hotel, however. <laughs> they're bringing uh, Team Sky, hacks in their own mattresses every night, so they pull out the mattresses. So Chris Froome sleeps in the same mattress every night of every hotel during the Tour de France. And let me tell you, Kaylee knows this, all you guys know this, the hotels in France do not have, there's not a lot, not a lot of consistency across the mattress scope there in, uh, in France. So, you know, that's an added little, you know, an added little marginal game. And man, if you're, if you're a professional cyclist and sleeping is a huge part of your recovery, that's an advantage. Uh, there goes Hoodie again, bagging on France. Just can't stand <laughs> France. Um, I think it's all part of a very well thought out merchandising campaign where someday you will be able to buy Team Sky's mattresses for optimum sleeping performance. And someday maybe you will be able to buy your own Team Sky mega trailer too to take around with you uh, just in case you need optimum performance. Uh, what about floor two of that trailer, Hoodie? What van was life. that like? Yeah, that's van, van life. That's van life. I mean, do they have like recliners and like Xbox up there? I mean, just did, you, did they give you the full tour? Yeah, yeah. Uh, level two is, is pretty. It's kind of like a chill out zone. They have um, oh man some couches. They have some big screen TVs. Probably a little Xbox. They have uh, <laughs> they do. They had some couches, um, some recliners in there. They have a uh, office, like an office area where they have team meetings in there. And then today we actually used it during the the time trial to warm up. They kind of rolled out to the side of, of the of the van of the, of the setup there, and that's where they did their warm ups. In this uh, in this race of van uh, trailer, I mean it, it's it's elevating the game of cycling. Wow. Is it a bad thing? Is it a good thing? Is it unfair? That's a debate that the sport has to have. But you know, how can why why would you as a sport want to stop people from making these kinds of uh, developments? I mean, jealousy. You could say it. <laughs> haters gonna hate. Jealousy, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's mostly it. Yeah, and I do think that like stuff like this is is a big part of the reason why Sky can get such good riders. I mean, they keep telling us that they actually don't spend exorbitant amounts of money on their riders. They, they, they tell us this. Uh, but if you're, you know, maybe they are, maybe they're spending the same amount of money as something like BMC, but if they have all these other things where riders are convinced that if they go to Sky, they're going to ride better, I mean, that, that can be enough to, to, to tip, tip a rider over the edge signing a contract. I'm going to give the raised eyebrow skeptics answer to that. I think it's about <laughs> handing out cash. To me, this is very reminiscent of, like, the University of Texas having this, like, Death Star, like, training facility that it can get its recruits. And then five years later, we're going to find out that they were getting under-the-table money from boosters. But that's just the way it goes. Anyway, <laughs> let's move on. So let's talk about the podium because we have two spots left open with – Four guys, maybe five, all battling for it. In Ilner Zacharin. I'd say five, yeah. Five guys. Yeah. Wilco Kelderman, Vincenzo Nibelli. Uh, we got our main man, Superman Lopez, and Alberto Contador with a bullet coming up strong. What do we make of this battle for the podium right now? Who would you choose at this point to see uh, those last two spots going to? Well, we got a couple pretty tricky stages coming up. My my, my final podium, and I think I've, I think I've said this before, my final podium right now is Froome, Nibali, Contador. Contador slowly working his way north, uh, slowly working his way up the, the standings, and I think he's going to end up snagging that third-place spot. But he does have some some heavy competition. I mean, Kelderman put in an awesome time trial. Uh, he was the closest to Froome by almost 30 seconds. Um, Nibali also had a great, great time trial as well, which is why I leave him on the podium. But yeah, th- there's still a whole bunch of guys that could really take this. I think that uh, I think that Zacharin and particularly Lopez are definitely going to be two guys to watch on some of these really gnarly stages, the Angleroo stage, and then Wednesday's Machu- Machuco. Am I saying that correctly? Los Machucos, uh, which yes. I did a quick Google translate, and it tells me it means the Hertz. The, what, what's the what's the actual translation of this Spanish speaking hoodie? Uh, you know, I didn't actually uh, ask that today. So there you go. It hurt. <laughs> it hurts so good. Hurts. Yeah, I, I, that's just Google Translate. So who knows if that's actually correct? But that is a super super hard twenty five percent climb. You will probably be well. You probably be watching that on television right about the time that this podcast actually uh, goes up. So we won't spend too much time talking about it. But yeah, Lopez, Zachary, and those guys are really well suited to those punchy climbs. However. 
I think that Contador just looks like he's getting better and better and better, and I think that Contador is going to snag that third podium spot. I think, yeah, I think Contador is a pretty good pick, but he didn't quite look amazing over this last weekend of mountain stages, so he's going to try for it a lot more than the other guys in terms of just riding aggressive. I might be eating some crow when it comes to Wilco Kellerman last week on the Mm. podcast. I was dragging him. Didn't think he had a shot at doing anything notable. Great time trial, but I think he still could slip. He could slip out to fifth, maybe sixth, if he has problems this weekend on the climbs. We'll see. But, um, man, another young rider coming out of that Sunweb program who's got awesome potential, right? I mean, that's really what Sunweb's become known for in the last couple of years here is just churning out these young talents and developing them on their own, basically. Yeah, I mean, can they they hang on to a guy like that with Dumoulin? That's Mm, that's the question. Obviously, Warren Barguil is on his way out. Uh, was kicked out of the Vuelta, right? Par- that precipitated that. my, yeah, that precipitated my my Woko Kellerman insult. So, for that, <laughs> I apologize. But uh, Lopez looking good. I'm telling you, Astana should be riding for Lopez, not for Aru. Look at that time trial, right? Come That's on, true. like Aru is the GC guy. He should be the one, the top guy on that team in the time trial. But he did not do Had that. A terrible TT. Yeah. What a shocker, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Fabio Aru didn't do a good time trial. <laughs> Hoodie, what's your take? What are people talking about out there uh, for this battle for the podium? I mean, Nibali, he obviously has the experience. He um, probably, you know, if you put it on paper, he's the favorite to stay on the podium. But I think the real X factor is Contador. Do people think he can he can do it? He can get on that uh, in that second or third place spot? Yeah, he's certainly the crowd favorite. The, the outpouring of public affection for Alberto during this world has been impressive. I mean, every day there are absolutely huge crowds around the trucks like a photo bus at the start, at the finish. Along the roadside, you see all the signs and the fans really cheering him on. But Alberto has really been the top cycling star over the past 10 years or so here in Spain. So for a lot of ways, this has been a three-week-long farewell party for, for Alberto. So he's doing everything he can to try to win a stage, to try to get on the podium. But I just think, I don't know, it's a pretty deep top six when you look at these guys. I think Alberto just might not quite be able to get onto the podium because I think you see, as Fred just mentioned, you know, Nibali, he's a crafty racer. Even when he's not on great legs, he always seems to be able to kind of just get in there and not not lose. You know, he's a, he's a smart rider. He, doesn't, you know, he knows where to follow the right wheels, knows how to, not to lose time. And I think it's really maybe Nibali might even slip to third. I mean, the guys that impressed me so far have been Zacharin, who's just been in there every day knocking elbows. But the, the, the big buzz really at this welfare in the past week has been Lopez. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Superman Lopez, he's won two stages and he was second in that other stage where the uh, the riders stayed away there and they couldn't reel him in. Uh, Micah on La Pandera the other day. And so everyone, everyone, the buzz is like, it's clear that Lopez is the strongest climber in this Vuelta España with two more summit finishes. He'll probably at least win one more of those and he'll be attacking. The problem will be, of course, when he goes this time, Froome will have to go with him. So that can really put everybody else on the ribbon. So let's let's talk a little bit more about uh, Mikel Aniel Lopez because he is a young rider. He's only 23 years old. He's been on people's radars for a couple years now as uh, one of these really talented, explosive climbers coming out of Colombia. And he's a guy that I think a lot of us looked uh, to last year for having a Grand Tour breakout. But uh happened this year. All, two stages of the Welta already. He won a uh, stage. Uh, it was stage 11. And um, was that stage 15? So, Hoodie, what can you tell us about this guy? Let's start off the nickname, Superman. Where'd that come from? Why do we, why do we call him Mr. Superman? Yeah, this is one of those great backstories. This is why I love the riders from Colombia because every one of these guys has this amazing story about where they came from. You know, Rio Buta Oran, his, his dad was killed in some sort of like paramilitary raid and he ended up selling lottery tickets when he was 14 years old to help out his uh, family. And then you had uh, Nairo Quintana and he comes from the Altiplano and he's like a, a son of a poor kind of, you know, uh, man who owns a vegetable stand and rode uh, an old beat up mountain bike. It's like passing these uh, semi-pro riders riding back and forth to school. <laughs> you know, so these guys all have these amazing stories that make them such great characters. And so Superman's backstory is evidently, uh, I was talking to some uh, Colombian journalists and this story has been knocking around the last couple of years is that when he was, uh, before he was going to ride the Vuelta of Colombia, Juventud, it's, it's kind of like a, a junior version of the, of the tour of Colombia. He was out training about a few days before the race started 
and these uh, thieves uh, stopped him with knives and tried to steal his bike. And he said, no way he was stealing my bike, man. <laughs> and there was, uh, there was like a little bit of a, a, a tussle. And evidently he was stabbed twice in one of his legs. But he managed to beat off these two thieves, kept his bike, raced this race a few days later, and was attacking one day up the mountain with the, the wounds in his leg. And the TV announcer said, look at him climb. He's just like a Superman. And ever since then, he's been super Superman Lopez. I like it. I think I think well, I I, for a little while, I thought that maybe he had got, given his, himself that nickname. And that's not really a nickname you can give yourself. But no. I, that, now that I know the backstory, I definitely approve of the uh, the Superman nickname. And so now he won the 2014 Tour de l'Avenir. So, you know, that is the race that really showcases Grand Tour talent for the future. And then this past year, he won the Tour de Suisse. And that was like, that was a pretty gnarly Tour de Suisse. It was rainy. There was a ton of climbing. That was the one where TJ Van Garderen had a bad day, rebounded with a stage win. And I think after that Tour de Suisse victory, everyone kind of said, okay, the next step for this guy is having a Grand Tour breakout. But it didn't really happen at the end of last season or the beginning of this season. Hoodie, what, what was going on with this guy? You're right. He, he, was, uh, he started last year as well. So it was yeah, some... You know, as a rookie, had some realistic ambitions. Stage win, top ten. Um, just a chance to prove himself. He crashed out in the first week, so he didn't even get out in the first week. And then this past year, there was some talk of maybe going to the Giro, but everyone kind of agrees that the Vuelta is really the first best first Grand Tour for a young pro. Even though it's it's, got, it's gotten harder, harder over the last ten years, it's still a little bit more tranquilo. It's not quite as intense as the Giro because those Giro climbs are longer and harder, and the weather is always back of the Giro. So the Vuelta generally. They're a little bit more uh, shorter stages sometimes, a little bit easier for a new pro to ease into Grand Tour racing. And so, yeah, second Grand Tour start, knocks it on the park with two state, mountaintop stage wins, really against against the best Grand Tour riders in the peloton. And he had, I, I, he had some serious injuries, too. I mean, he had a fractured tibia that I believe he suffered in a training crash, and then I think he broke his thumb earlier this year. You know, the guy has had a few major obstacles to overcome, which is why we have not seen him uh, at the top of the list. Because, yeah, I remember after that Tour de Suisse crash, people, especially within the Astana camp, were saying, okay, you know, how is Astana going to juggle the ambitions of then, uh, you know, rider Vincenzo Nibali, as well as Fabio Raru, as well as this Miguel Aniel Lopez? And, you know, with Nibali leaving and Aru stepping into the driver's seat there along with Fuglzang, I think a lot of us said, okay, now the door's open for Lopez, and he really has taken advantage of it. I mean, what does this mean for Astana going forward, knowing that they have this young, explosive, up and coming rider? Well, it just really gives uh, Astana that, that kind of second leg, you know, in the, in the Grand Tour. You know, you have Fuglsong, who's, you know, he's had a couple of good races, you know, one in Dauphiné, but he's not really a consistent Grand Tour performer, even though the Danish journalists will never admit to that. Uh, <laughs> and you have, and they also have the rumor that uh, Aru is leaving Astana, and then, uh, yeah, he's leaving the team, going to uh, Emirates, and then, uh, uh, Rigoberto Oran is coming into Astana, and if that's the case, whatever. Even if Aru's there, he's replaced by a different rider. That there's plenty of room on that team for a strong Giro Welter rider, and that's just the kind of rider that Lopez can be. I think he can win a Grand Tour. We saw today he lost some time against Frims against the pure time trial. He's going to lose that one, two, three, two to three minutes range on a big 40k time trial. But against everybody else, if you don't have that Dumoulin, you don't have that room in the race. He'll be right there kind of defending himself and then making that time up in the mountains like in this wealthy you saw him just go and no one really been able to stay with him. I mean, he is really young, too. So uh, theoretically, a team should be able to convince him, maybe be able to convince him to, to hold off a little bit, maybe work for somebody else, maybe, you know, not focus on the Tour de France quite yet. So that should help assuage some of the, uh, the battling egos. The other thing to keep in mind here is that a lot of these guys – they put in an incredible ride relatively early like this, and then they often struggle to match it. I mean, I, I'm even thinking of, of, of a rider like Quintana, who you could argue that you know Quintana's first Tour de France is still his best, and has yes, he's been very, very good. Yes, he's been very, very close, but he's sort of, it feels like a bit of a plateau, like he hit that plateau kind of early, and I do wonder whether... Well, he uh, did win the Giro. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but like he's, he's been trying to win the Tour ever since and has not gotten any closer, so... I do wonder if if a rider like Lopez, yes, they 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 rise very quickly. Uh, can he 
continue rising. It's because Quintana didn't have the van with the expandable doodad <laughs> in the PlayStation room like Sky does. That's the reason. He just needed a PlayStation He couldn't room. win that Tour de France without that van. What would the Velonews version of that van be? It would just be like a 70s like crappy van with shag carpet. <laughs> but it would have good Wi-Fi. That's the key. Yeah, it would have great true. Wi-Fi. And yeah. bike racks. Definitely. Uh, well, anyway, we're going to keep our eyes on uh, Superman Lopez because he is definitely a rider, not just for the future, but a rider for right now. And a potential rider for the next topic, which we need to talk about with this year's Welta. The Angry Lou. Angry Lou is coming up. The steepest, biggest, baddest hardest climb in all of Europe. Well, at least they, so they say. Uh, 24% at its steepest, average 10.3% for 12.5K, climbing 4,154 feet. That's a big climb. That's a big, painful climb. It's a big, nasty climb. Goat path up the side of a mountain, basically. Super steep. Weather's usually bad. Hoodie, you've been there before. Um, based off of the levels of fitness that you've seen from these guys, how do you see it playing out? Yeah, this is one of those climbs that uh, it's so steep, it's so hard that it really wants you get up there. It's almost every man for himself. The expectation is Lopez to, to throw down. I mean, this is when the final podium will be decided. I think the difference is tomorrow and the La, Los Machucos is gonna be relatively tight among these really top guys. So I think Dan Glue is the final throw down. Uh, of course, remember the big showdown that year between uh, Chris Chris uh, Horner and Nibali in 2013. Everyone expected Nibali to really get rid of rid of Horner and win that Welton, and, and, and Horner could hang on. So it's one of those kind of races where you, know, you just grit your teeth, you just bury yourself, and you just give everything you got because it's so steep. You can only go so fast. So even if a guy gets a gap on you, it's not going to be that much time once you start clicking off the seconds. So you're picking Lopez. I, I think Froome's going to do it. I think that uh, he's going to have an advantage, but he's got some serious pride at stake. It was the it was the scene of his undoing. Uh, I believe that was the 2011 tour when uh, noted or Vuelta, the noted Vuelta Juan Jose Cobo wrote mm-hmm. away from everybody. Noted Cobo. Noted Cobo, our favorite Cobo, <laughs> one of my favorite Cobos. So I think that uh, I think that Froome is going to do it. I think he's going to charge up that hill. To, to step on the uh, the tech beat a little bit, actually, so a lot of guys have, have made the mistake of not running low enough gears on this climb mm. before, and I think that that is actually potentially a danger for Machucos as well because it's so very steep. Uh, I think it was Wiggins, actually, who really ran into problems uh, on Angleroo before, and basically it came down to didn't run a low enough gear. And on a climb like that, if you can't spin, you know, that could be a real problem. And Froome, in particular, is a spinner. So I, I wonder how he will do on the on the real, real steep bits. You can only put so low gears on a road bike unless you start putting mountain bike stuff on there. So I, the, the usual sort of Froome spin-away tactic is going to be basically impossible on a, on a pitch like that. Anybody remember uh, 1999? Jose Maria Jimenez winning up there. Oh, man, that was a great vintage. I There's a fun YouTube video there. Okay. Yeah. He was a kind of a big dude. Just crushing it. Big guy, big guy, big gear, big gear in every sense of the word. <laughs> Weird, yeah. Wonder why so he's well so well trained. Yeah, wow. Huh. Oh man. Biggest yeah. of gear. He done all his core work. Yeah, all cycling winter. was really different back then. <laughs> there, there is some rain forecasted for Saturday as well. Oh no. Just Ooh. to make it that much more fun. Ooh. Yeah. Um, what's when it rains up there? It's pretty nasty. What's the strategy from a race coverage perspective, hoodie? I mean, do they have press buffet and like tents and stuff? Like, do they have a sky style uh, press trailer for you up there? Or are you basically just standing around trying to like grab Kenny Elisanda as he f- falls off his bike? <laughs> That's pretty much it. Um, they haul us up there in some uh, some van, drop us off there several hours before the stage even arrives. So. You go up there and it's raining, and you're literally standing around for two hours. There's, it's, it's really just a knob. There's not, there's no building up there. There's not like a, it's not like a top of a ski resort in some little chalet up there. So you just stand around and then you just try to grab guys. The big problem is logistically that a lot of riders go up, cross the finish line, put on a jacket, and go straight back down. So it's, a, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge sometimes just to get riders to even stop and either they're like cross-eyed and. And, and falling over sideways, or they just want to get off the damn thing. They grab a, they grab a jacket and go straight back to the team buttons. Yeah, they don't really want to talk to you. Uh, I have a, I have a really important question, actually. Uh, we do we have both of our Cat 3s back in the house. Yeah. Um, mm. I think that we need some some Cat 3 advice for getting up the Angleroo. Let's do it. Super steep climb? Yep. Ask a Cat 3. Mm-hmm. Spencer, as a Cat 3, when you are faced with a wall-like, super steep, painful climb, 
What's your advice for pacing and just, you know, winning on, on a feature like that? Mm. Uh, well, if you've ever, if you've ever heard of some of these, uh, hill climbs, like they have them in the UK mm-hmm. and there's also, uh, of course the Mount Washington hill climb in new England here in the U S uh, people go for the real specialized bikes for that type of thing. Like they'll take the big ring off, take the front derailleur off, remove a lot of parts, just kind of go to town on it. So I say you just totally change up all of your equipment right before the race in an effort to save as much weight as possible because, hey, it's a steep climb. You're not going to need a lot of that. You don't need any brakes, right? No brakes needed no for brakes. a steep climb. Cut yeah. off the bottom of your handlebars. You don't need the drops. Oh, Phil Gaiman style. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, mm. what I was going to say is in addition to just um, trying to go as hard as you can at the bottom because what's going to happen to your rivals is they're going to see how hard you're going and they're going to be like, oh, man, I can't. They're going to just lose hope and give up at that point. I would say get out the old uh, DeWalt uh, drill the night before and just start drilling holes and stuff, man. Drillium. Like everything uh, can be drilled uh, at least a few times before it loses its structural integrity. Especially carbon fiber. Yeah, so I'm talking about uh, up tubes, down tubes, sideways tubes, (laughs) uh, seats, seat posts, just drill it out, man. Okay. I think our lawyers at this yeah, point do, would like us to mention that you shouldn't maybe yeah, do that. Side note, side note to the listeners, uh, we are totally, Sorry, totally joking, and this is a very bad, bad idea. <laughs> Don't drill into your carbon fiber bike. Do not listen to anything we say. Thanks, Cat Threes. Um, okay, guys, moving on. We are a week into Cannondale Gate. Um, That's what we're calling it. Slipstream Gazi. I mean, what do we call this? (laughs) It's a little problematic to do that. Um, We uh, have been following the big story of American team, Candale Drapak, trying to raise some money. And what's the current update? They they have like a million bucks in the bank, two million bucks? Oh, pull it up, pull it up. Well, actually, I got it right here. Uh, They just ticked over as of podcast recording time, uh, midday Tuesday. Ticked, ticked over half a million dollars hey, on there. Uh, while you're on that, can you uh, donate like 50 bucks in my name? Will you get the mug <laughs> or the tote for that? Oh, oh, wait, yeah. Oh, no, no, I want I the would, tote. Which, whichever one the tote is. The tote's 250 are, are you kidding? The mug is only 50 bucks. Okay, I think just the, mug the mug is the best we'll ROI. The mug. Okay, the mug yeah. it is. All right, thanks. <laughs> thanks for doing that. So, yeah, we're at, we're at $502,000, 4,104 backers, which I think is actually pretty impressive. And all of this, remember, has been matched by the Fairly Group. So, basically, they've come up with a million bucks, which leaves them $6 million from actually yeah, having a high I was doing team. the math in my head, and I was like, that's about most of the way short. Yep. Not quite there. So, uh, well, okay. So I was texting with John Vodders over the weekend, and he said that there is reason to be uh, optimistic. Okay. Actually, I'm looking up this text. My, I'm opening my, my text here. Yeah, he said magic is happening. Okay. Uh, and then he sent me uh, a little fingers crossed emoji. And then also a, a middle finger emoji. So I don't know. What, I think. That, I think <laughs> How that, rude! I'm hoping that was an accident, JV. Uh, that one's anyway. just in the recently used. <laughs> he was probably like flying his plane. At I the didn't time. know how to respond, so I sent him a little like uh, rock on. Rock you on. Threw the emoji. horns. He threw yeah, the horns. Threw the horns back at him. Wow. Anyway, he is. He's, he's expressed optimism. He's sent an email out to the team expressing optimism. He's mentioned some things on Twitter, expressing optimism. Uh, I think that, you know, I think he's optimistic. Well, you're going to outwardly do that, of course, to encourage donations. It's not like you're going to doom and gloom it, obviously. Yeah, I I do think that the, the, I don't think he'd be sending a note to the team unless he had something, some sort of nibble. You know, like if if he's off fishing right now, he's, his little bobber is, is dipping. He has definitely not caught anything yet, but uh, (laughs) the bobber is dipping underneath the water. And I do think that he's maybe got some things you know, maybe some things coming his way. He does have some some high profile people working to help him. John Kerry for John one. John Kerry for yeah. one. Uh, if you went, if you if you missed our interview with John of the Motors, you can go back and find that in the last episode. It's pretty interesting, actually. Uh, you know, I don't think we can. I don't think anyone around this table can really say. You know, we we can't give a, a a chance of survival here at this point. We we honestly just don't know enough. I don't think John of the Motors knows enough. What we can say is that riders are definitely starting to bail yeah uh, they are they are looking elsewhere they are starting to bail uh actually i think now's a great time to drop into this quick interview with tom squinch uh who's currently riding the vuelta for Kendall dray pack and he chatted with hoodie a little bit about sort of the mood in the team and and you know looking elsewhere and what teams might be interested in what he may be doing uh now it's a game for us every uh like yesterday before massage i checked uh, how much people had funded and after massage so it was like 
twenty thousand dollars during massage. <laughs> really? Hey. Yeah. That's, a but, good, that's a good rate. Uh, anyways, uh, yeah, for sure the team, uh, the news hit hit us and. Um, was uh, it's not the easiest news to take when you're kind of maybe at a job next year however we're still here to race our bikes and still here to put on a good show so you can like yesterday we we were still up there and every day we're going to still be up there and uh, that's not going to change like sure it's in the back of our minds but like it's such a small percentage because uh for a lot of us is the first grand tour and that comes first yeah we well we don't have uh much more information than the people have because uh the team is pretty transparent and they don't really hide anything so uh yeah obviously we got the news a little bit beforehand everyone else but uh the people know what we know pretty much yeah for sure the big guys are gonna find spots and uh we're talking about which farm we're gonna go work on and uh, which school we're gonna go back to. And uh, <laughs> you hope it doesn't come down to that, right? Oh, for sure. No, obviously. Like, uh, I still want to race my bike, and uh, even if it's even if it comes to that, that I don't have uh, a world tour contract next year. Um, there's pro conti projects that uh, seem interesting and. Uh, I know a lot of teams are full, and even Pro Conti teams are full, mm. so it's a limited uh, choice, so to say, but it's not like I've ever had a lot of choice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the timing is the bad part, right? It's just for you know, yeah, just yeah. belly up. Well, for me, it, it, it's always been a contract year, so I've always been on the hunt, mm. which has been pretty bad for me anyways. <laughs> but... Uh, for the guys that had signed, I think it's a little bit worse, uh, just because they, for them, it came kind of out of the blue, yeah. and uh, and they were not even like Brendan Canty, which is an, who's an EO pro this year. Um, like he's done a lot of work for the team, he's gained a lot of experience, but like what is he like? He's he hasn't he had another year on his contract, so it's not like he had uh, planned on anything like this, you know. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, we wish the best of luck to guys like Tom's, you know, it's tough for a rider like him in that position where he's young, he's up and coming, probably in a different scenario. He uses his experience at Cannondale to get the types of results that allow him to either continue on with the team or transfer to another world tour program. Mm -hmm. But in the position that he's in, you know, that's, that's a tough one to be in. Yeah. And he was, like you said, he was already in a contract year, so he was already looking. And I think that that puts him in a better position than someone who already signed a contract. Uh, the good news is that most of the contracts that were already announced were high profile riders. The guys like Uran, uh, Dylan Van Barl, those guys should be able to find a ride. Yes. Well, maybe not Uran, but someone like Van Barl might be taking a pay cut because he's going to fill out one of the last slots on the team. And uh, frankly, there just isn't that much budget left. Uh, but there are definitely riders who are going to be just left out in the cold. And let's not forget all of the team staff. If this team closes, you're talking about a whole bunch of staff who are going to be, well, they're frankly, they're worse off than the riders. They've been paid worse for the last couple of years. A lot of them are making, you know, at or less than the, the, the world tour minimum salary. Uh, and they are going to be sort of out in the cold, unfortunately. So that again, to come back to, to Vodder's optimism, I think that we all kind of share that, at least for the sake of, you know, some of those great mechanics and things that we know. The latest news, Mr. Andrew Tolansky, uh, one of the highest profile riders on Candle Draypack, just announced Tuesday morning that he is retiring from the sport. 28 years old. He went on Instagram, posted a, mus a message after a great deal of thought and consideration. It is time to bring down the curtain on my career as a professional cyclist. It has been a truly incredible ride. I'll miss my teammates and the camaraderie on and off the bike. Most of all, I'm going to miss the fans. Few sports put its fans closer to the action, which is a large part of what makes pro cycling so special. Uh, you can read the rest on Instagram. This is a really strange story, guys. To me, this is very strange. We have seen riders retire at a relatively young age. Mr. Tlanscape believes 28, 29 in that ballpark before. But, you know, a talented American like this with a grand tour potential retiring this early, that caught me by surprise. Did not expect to see that. You know, obviously, Andrew didn't have the um, best year of his career this year. We spoke to him at the tour, you and me, Kaylee, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, seemed like 
he wasn't at his best at the Tour de France, but I did. I don't know about you. This this caught me by surprise. I did not expect to see this. Yeah, I mean, he's been a little bit off uh, for a for a while now. You know, had a great Vuelta last year, but then had a, a pretty poor Tour de France. Had an okay Tour of California. Didn't do the Vuelta, and we expected him to do the Vuelta this year. Did not do that. Uh, now we, I guess, we know why. He mentioned on Twitter that he'd been. This has been something he's been knocking around for a little while. It's impossible to know, honestly, whether the the potential folding of the team has anything to do with it. I mean, he may just not have had it in him to even look elsewhere. Um, but yeah, I, I was definitely surprised. I mean, you know, he, he does have a new kid. That certainly changes a person, from what I hear. Don't have one. Uh, none of us do, actually. Uh, from what I hear, that changes you quite a lot. So. You know that, that that could be part of it. It's it's really impossible to get inside his head uh, and truly know what what's going on in there. But you know, just maybe didn't want to be a bike racer anymore. Jo- Jonathan Vodder's re- retired at twenty nine. Remember, so wasn't that much older. And, and JV's figured it out on his own. I think J- JV had some serious uh, things going on within the sport. True, <laughs> that led him to retire. Not exactly the same situation. Definitely um, kind of different. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know, Hoodie. What's your take on this? Were people talking about this at all at the Welta today? And can you remember a recent uh, occurrence like this when a guy, especially an American, seemingly at the top of his game, walks away from the sport? I, I was surprised to see to see this headline as well. I thought that, uh, I mean, I have to say, Andrew Zelensky, really interesting guy. When he came onto the scene, you know, you remember he was second in the 2010 uh, Tour de Avenir behind a kid named Nairo Quintana. So Zelensky had a really interesting kind of road into the into the world tour. He kind of did it his own way. He wasn't one of the kind of the selected boys inside the U23 American uh, program. He never quite worked in that way. And he was just freelancing and bashing his way around uh, Europe and around the U.S. scene. And JV had, always has his radar up to kind of off-the-grid talent and, and saw something in, in Zelensky. And I remember just his first season, he was popping up in these early results, fourth in a time trial at some weird race, like the Tour of Med or something like that. And I just wrote him, uh, JV, I said, you know, who is this Andrew Zelensky? He's like, oh, this guy's great. He's going to win the Tour someday. So I ended up calling out Zelensky and did a couple of really quite interesting interviews with a guy, you know, really five, six, maybe even seven years ago when he was just a young man, 22, 23. Just a lot of self-confidence, a lot of uh, sense of who he was and what he wanted to achieve. And it would be interesting to do an exit interview with him to kind of just see if he that same candor and kind of really find out, you know, what happened. I mean, in a lot of ways, Chapeau, if, if, if his heart wasn't in it, you know, maybe that's that's you have to respect the guy for walking away rather than just kind of hanging around, getting a cheap salary, or, you know, a high salary on the uh, on, a, on the cheap in the sense of you know your heart's not in it, you just don't have the money. You know, we don't know exactly what happened there yet, but I, I was shocked. He said twenty eight to walk away. That's that something's not right there. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, you sort of got the sense over the last year that he was a different rider uh i mean he was always known as being kind of fiery and at the vuelta last year was the first time we we actually saw sort of a new talansky and and i wrote a cover story actually we for, put him on the cover this Melody's year magazine. gosh dang it we put him on the cover ah. this winter taming talansky and, and yeah and he really was he, he felt kind of tame this year i i also had a couple of really good conversations with him uh on the phone over the winter time and then again th- throughout the season and he's 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 a, he's a very intelligent rider. Uh, that's one of the things that really stands out when you talk to him. Is he's a really smart guy, and he, I do think that uh, he almost had the tendency to overanalyze things. And I heard that from a couple people around him as well. Whatever's going through his head right now, I, I'm I'm with Hoodie. I think you got to give the guy kudos for for maybe just being honest with himself and, and realizing that this isn't what he wants to do anymore. And, and honestly, having having the balls to to do it I, I mean it would be the easier way here is just to continue making his you know couple hundred grand a year which is nothing to scoff at uh and and you know just not train quite as hard and sort of slowly fall off uh everyone's everyone's radar until you finally are forced to retire that would have been the easy thing he didn't do that so i say kudos to him and we will we will i'm gonna be i reached out to him already we'll reach out to him again we'll try to figure out exactly what the story here is well, that may be a good uh, kicker for our outro question this week. Guys, what is your favorite Andrew Talansky moment? Andrew, favorite Andrew Talansky memory? Anybody? Anybody? I got a good one. Okay. <laughs> 
I remember, I'm not quite sure, I think it was actually, it might have been the 2011 Vuelta España. I think it was his first Grand Tour he was doing. And I'd already had spoken to him once or twice, a couple times during that season. Was impressed with what he said, so kind of keeping an eye on him. Here's a young, kind of ambitious, articulate, potentially very good American writer. So keeping a close tabs on him. I think that year's Vuelta started with a team time trial. Somewhere, I think I might have been Pablona. I can't remember where it was. And uh, but, uh, you know, as, as the Garmin team, I think it was Garmin in those days, came in. They'd, they'd crashed. They'd crashed during the team time trial. So Talansky ended up losing a minute or two minutes right in the first stage of the race. And he came up to the team bus, just threw his helmet against the team bus, <laughs> and started just jamming his finger in the face of Christian Vandeveld. And I'm just standing there, you know, next to the mechanic. Watching uh, Christian Vandeveld, watching Talansky lay into Vandeveld, then he like threw his bike down and steamed into the team bus. <laughs> I go, oh, man, I go, this kid's different than anybody else. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I definitely have a couple. Uh, I have a couple Talansky temper tantrum stories. Um, he was, as I said, fiery. You know, nicknamed the pit bull for a reason. Pit bulls have their softer sides too, though. That is very let's, true. Let's, well, let's and remember. like I said, he's a he's a very intelligent guy, uh, and I think that that is more so than the than the temper. I think that uh, particularly in the last year or so, that's really what I saw. I uh, didn't see much of the temper at all. Uh, in, in particularly in the last year, one of us has to say Criterium Dauphiné 2014. Yeah, because that was just a a great piece of bike racing, really smart pitting you know the other gc favorites against each other kind of flying a little under the radar riding alone to to that victory or well riding with Ryder heschel actually i should say riding victory big, probably the biggest win of his career right there so you gotta you gotta say that's a that's a real fond memory and and just purely from a race fan perspective it's, it was an exciting day to watch yeah no he read that race really well uh my favorite was uh i was at Vela news the first go around i believe it was the 2007 collegiate national championships held oh. at uh, fort collins Colorado state university i was the sole member of the media there uh, andrea smith usa cycling's media director at the time drove me around in her ford explorer with some like tape on the side of it that said media car <laughs> And uh, watched first as Carla Swart won the women's race. Uh, and then a couple hours later, there's this front group of guys from like University of Colorado, Fort Lewis, all the powerhouse schools we expect. And then this no, this no nobody, no name kid from Lise McRae just drops them all going up this climb, hits the corkscrew descent on the way into town and wins. And I was the only media guy there. So I went up and interviewed him. And it was the baby faced Andrew Talansky. And I, don't, I think he was like asking for his dad or something like that. He was just didn't really, <laughs> just like, yeah, 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 you know, went really hard, dropped everybody, no big deal. Like, where am I supposed to go now? <laughs> we were all there that day. Yeah, so actually, do you, know, do you know where I was at that race? Were you in the pack? I was getting dropped by Mike. Yeah. And I was, I was there because I was the Rocky Mountain Collegiate Cycling Conference Director at that Wow. Race. We yes. all came together. I think actually, uh, I didn't world. get dropped. I gave my wheel to Phil Mann. Wow. Phil. Um, stole my wheel. Wasn't our um, <laughs> our training expert Trevor Connor was there? Trevor, well? uh, that might have been pre-Trevor. Yeah. That might have been in the year before Trevor got to to CSU. Uh, my Talansky memory, and this is an obscure one, um, and I was I only watched it on on terrible online internet feed video. But uh, this is sort of like peak uh, beginning of of the Talansky Van Garderen rivalry, mm. and it was the stage. Uh, it was a stage to Brioud in uh, Paris Nice in 2013, where Talansky won ahead of a whole bunch of big names: Richie Port, Roman Bardet, and crucially got rid of T.J. Van Gogh in that day. And it sort of helped our little uh, helped our little rivalry there. I love that day. There was another Paris Nice day where uh, where uh, Talansky was going head to head with Richie Port. I remember that was there are a couple of those. So the guys always seem to battle it out. In that so race. he was second uh, in Paris Nice that year, uh, behind I think it might have been behind. Richie, it was. It was behind Richie Port. It was 55 seconds behind Richie Port in 2013 in Paranese. So that is probably the year you're thinking of. Well, I'm like you, Kaylee. I'm going to miss the guy. Uh, very interesting, articulate bike racer. Always had great insights into both the racing, also the business side of the sport. So Andrew Slansky, chapeau on an impressive career. Well, guys, um, before we send it to the outro this week, I actually have some uh, other sad news to talk about. That is the the Brooklyn Boogaloo blowout, the band 
that plays us out every week. The founding member of that band, a guy named Tim Lunsell, passed away about a week ago. He was suffering from ALS. About a year ago, when we launched the Velenies podcast, I called up Tim to talk to him about the podcast, why I loved his music, why I loved the band, and he was so psyched. He didn't know anything about bike racing, but was gracious enough to say, you can use the music. Uh, this was a band that I love to go see live when I lived in New York City. So uh, this week's episode goes out to the friends and family of Tim Lunsell and the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout. So we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on velnews.com. Subscribe to the Velnews Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and rating. Become a fan of Velnews on Facebook at facebook.com slash Magazine, And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Velnews. The Velonews Podcast is produced by Velonews, which is owned by the competitor group. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Velonews Podcast of the, are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout, playing the Bernard Purdy Classic Soul Drums. <laughs> <laughs>